is Matthew 5, and we're going to read verses 10 through 12. I want to apologize for my voice. Uh, I couldn't let Aaron outdo me. My voice is worse than his. And so, I'm, uh, they're going to, as, I, as my voice gets weaker, my friends up there in the booth are going to turn me up. So, we'll, uh, we'll even out here. <clears throat> Alan Greer, a couple of Wednesday nights ago, in his uh, Wednesday night Bible study, quoted from Martin Luther, the great reformer from the 1500s. Martin Luther said, a religion that gives nothing, that costs nothing, that suffers nothing, is worth nothing. Which brings us to the final beatitude. Chapter 5, Jesus speaks beginning at verse 10. Blessed Joy which no one and nothing can take away belongs to those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And note, it's those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. Joy which nothing and no one can take away belongs to you when people insult you, when they persecute you. And falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And please note that it's, Jesus says, because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus used, you'll note, more words for this particular beatitude than any of the others. To each of the other Beatitudes, Jesus <clears throat> gave a, a sentence. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the pure in heart, <clears throat> for they will see God. But to this one, this final Beatitude, Jesus designates an entire paragraph. To this point, we have heard the words of Jesus, and we've thought, if I, if I follow the Jesus way, I will not be in step with culture. Today we hear the final beatitude of Jesus, and we think, if I follow the Jesus way, I could lose my head. Today we, we've, we've thought for seven weeks that what Jesus has said is countercultural and counterintuitive. But today, Jesus drops the beatitudinal bombshell. Blessed, he says, joy which nothing and no one can take away belongs to those who are persecuted, insulted, lied about because of me. By the time this Gospel of Matthew circulated, and remember how it would have happened, Matthew would have, would have written his gospel and then someone sat and, and copied by hand a, a copy of, of the original, and, and then a man would have sat in a room, and three or four would have scribes would have sat around him, and they would have copied from that copy. And, and so copies of the Gospel of Matthew, including the Sermon on the Mount, spread across the Mediterranean world. So the first Christians would have heard the Sermon on the Mount, most of them in their house churches, from a copy of the Gospel of Matthew. 
And by the time they heard these things, persecution already was well underway. By the time the first Christians heard these words of Jesus, blessed are the persecuted, Stephen had been stoned. By the time they heard these words, blessed are the persecuted, John the Baptist already had been beheaded. By the time the first Christians heard these words, the Christians in Jerusalem already had scattered because of their terrible persecution. Within a few decades, Nero, the ruthless Roman emperor, would tie Christians to stakes along the streets of Rome. He would douse them in tar and light them so that they would illumine the Roman nights. Within a few decades, they would throw the Christians onto the floor of the great Colosseum. Lions would be released, and they would maul, they would rip the Christians apart, and and the people in the stands, the fans, would cheer for the lions. This was not hypothetical for the early Christians. They knew what Jesus was talking about. The persecution already had begun, and persecution continues. There are people in various parts of the world who will lose their life, some today, because of their open commitment to following Jesus. There are people so afraid of the power of the gospel that they will murder Christians and burn their churches just to stop the gospel from spreading. In Christianity Today recently, I read an article titled, the 50 hardest countries where, excuse me, the, the, the 50 countries where it's hardest to follow Jesus in 2023. In that article I read, more than 5,600 Christians were killed for their faith last year, and more than 2,100 churches were attacked or closed. And those are not just statistics, those are people, those are our Christian brothers and sisters across the world. Let me tell you a story that brings it home. <clears throat> a couple of years ago, I was in my office when uh, the phone rang, and it was one of, one of you. It was a member of our church. And this church member said, uh, I'm in conversation right now with a man from another country who wants to become a Christian. They had been working together on a project. But uh, this church member said to me, his English is very limited, and I'm not sure exactly what to do. Would you please come? Of course I did. <laughs> did. Sorry about that. I did. <laughs> and I, when I got there, I met a man uh, from a country where to openly follow Jesus would be very costly. <clears throat> and as, I'd been, as, it, as had been explained to me, his English was, was very limited. And so, you know, to, to talk about what it means to follow Jesus with a new believer, well, that's hard even in our mother tongue, even in our initial language. And to do this with a man whose English was so limited, I, I wondered, what will I do? So I got out my phone, and I looked up Google Translate. So on Google Translate, you might know, you, you speak, and you choose the language you want to translate to, and so you, it will translate those words in writing, and the person you're speaking with can read them. So I would say something, and, and then I'd hope and pray Google wouldn't mess it up, and then it would come out in his language, and he would read it. He would say something back into Google Translate. He'd hand me the phone. I would read it 
in English. We went back and forth for probably half an hour until we were at the point where it was obvious that we had talked enough and he was ready to make a decision. So I made some suggestions. I suggested a a prayer. I suggested some things he would want to say when he talked with God. And so we put down Google Translate, and he began to pray in his own language. I couldn't understand a word he was saying, but it was beautiful. It was moving. And when he had finished, as best I can know the heart of anyone besides myself, he had made a genuine decision to follow Jesus. And he wanted, he knew enough to say he wanted to be baptized. But he said, I cannot be baptized publicly because if word gets out that I have become a Christian, I will not be allowed to return to my home country and my family. And my family who are presently in my home country could be killed. And so four of us, the man, myself, the the member of our church who had introduced us, and then another member of our church gathered in the Life Center and in that portable baptistry, privately, secretly, we baptized a new believer. Folks, this is not hypothetical. This is not, this is, this is real. And there are people even among us who, if they were to follow Jesus openly, would be persecuted. This is a real thing. To follow Jesus often results in persecution, even for us. But let me warn you not to use that word persecution lightly in reference to ourselves. To use persecution of Christians in America might cheapen the word. It might trivialize what is happening in northern Nigeria and North Korea and Iran and so many places around the world. That's true. We might be mocked. Uh, We might be maligned. We might be marginalized. We might be misrepresented. But we will not go missing. We will not be murdered, mutilated, and martyred. There are levels of persecution. The level that we experience persecution here is minor compared to what is experienced in so many parts of the world. But here, there are levels of persecution. For example, in in movies and on TV, Christians are often lampooned. We we are often caricatured. In in a lot of movies and TV, uh, if if it's a Christian, then he or she is almost certain to be hyper-judgmental and anti-intellectual and downright grumpy. They, They treat the Christian faith as if it's a cult, often, often, often on TV and in the movies. If you're a student, uh, you might be teased because of your faith. If you're a student in high school or college, if you write a paper and taking what you believe to be a biblical stance on a hot-button cultural issue, you might be teased. You You might even have your grade lowered in some cases in high school and college by your teacher or professor. If you're an adult, uh, you might be left out of some social circles. You might, uh, you might even, might even suffer vocationally, uh, professionally because of your faith. Those things are real. They're not as dramatic as, in, as, as the persecution is in some parts of the world, but it is real. I want to offer another warning. The first warning is let's not use the word persecution lightly about ourselves. 
The second warning is, let's remember the difference between persecution and legitimate criticism. Jesus said, blessed are you if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And when people insult you and talk about you and persecute you because of me, let's not be obnoxious as Christians and then throw up our hands and claim persecution when we are rightly criticized. Let's not engage in hate speech and then throw up our hands when somebody criticizes us and claim persecution. Let me give you an example. I know her. She's a, a local uh, leader, uh, a local, uh, I'm trying to think of a, the right word, but she's a local leader who had to have a, had to make a, a tough decision. She really didn't have much of a choice because of the rules and the law, the way they read. She really had no choice. But when she made the decision, went public, it was terribly unpopular with a certain segment of American Christianity. And the emails she got, and the voicemail she got, and the hate mail she got, the venom the vitriol, the cursing, the name-calling, and she is a devoted follower of Jesus. It almost killed her, crushed her. These are my brothers and sisters who are saying this about me. Now, when we criticize people for doing that, that is not persecution. That is legitimate criticism. Let's not be hateful and obnoxious and then claim we're being persecuted when people criticize us. However, if we are living for Jesus faithfully and lovingly, if we are following Him closely and it costs us legitimately, then so be it. There always have been Christians who have paid the ultimate price, and prices, maybe not the ultimate price, but significant prices for following Jesus. If we are following Jesus openly, lovingly, faithfully, and then we're persecuted, then I would say, and I hope you would say, so be it. Of course, persecution is not all bad. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul, inspired by God's Spirit, wrote, For Christ's sake I delight in persecution, for when I am weak, then I am strong. The earliest Christians were a marginalized, terribly persecuted people. And these persecuted Christians, for two centuries, served so faithfully the church. The church spread rapidly across the Mediterranean world, up into Europe and beyond. For two centuries, the persecution was heavy, and the spread of Christianity was impressive. And then came 313 A.D. and Constantine. Constantine became emperor of the Roman Empire and claimed to be Christian. Debates still rage as to whether he was or not. We don't know anybody's heart, including his, but he claimed to be Christian. And he started building church buildings with taxpayer money. It was not the official religion of the Roman Empire, but it was the favored religion of the Roman Empire. Constantine, the, empire, the, the emperor, 
was going to church and being Christian, and so it became the cool thing to do. And a movement of persecuted Christians became an institution of cool Christians, and the Christian faith lost its power. When it became institutionalized and accepted and the thing to do, much of the power of the Christian faith flew out the window. And we are descendants of that favored status. We are descendants of what's called Christendom. Christendom is when the Christian faith is the largest influence on the culture. We are descendants of that. For years and years and years in the Bible Belt, if you wanted to be a successful business person, if you wanted to be included in the social circles, then you had to be a member of a respectable congregation. For a friend of ours in another state was being interviewed for a job to be vice president of a bank. The president, when he interviewed her, said, when you move here, you will join such and such church. That was the influential church in town. In the Bible Belt, there was a time when being, <clears throat> now you didn't have to take it seriously, but you had to be seen as a member of a respectable congregation in order to, to get ahead. It was the culturally accepted, expected Thing to do. Of course, things are, are changing. The things are changing, and the church no longer has the role in culture that it used to. Uh, the church and its leaders no longer have the respected place in the community that they used to. And so now it's not expected for people to be involved in a congregation in order to get ahead in business or to be included in the social circles. Things are changing. That ain't necessarily bad. When the Christian faith had its greatest power, it was under persecution. In places around the world now, where Christians are not the leaders, the church is spreading. In Europe now, it costs a great deal to be a follower of Jesus, and we are headed rapidly toward where Europe is. That's not necessarily a bad thing. When we become, when it, when it becomes costly, more costly for us to follow Jesus, perhaps God will empower us as He did those first Christians. In 2016, down in Gadsden, just down the road, there was a, a young lady from the Middle East who spoke at Meadowbrook Baptist Church. The story was in Yellowhammer News. She was asked after her presentation during a Q&A, she was asked, how can Christians in America pray for Christians in the Middle East? The way she answered is shocking. She answered, do not pray for the persecution to stop because the church is growing when the Muslims see how we love them anyway. Instead, pray that God would give us the strength and courage to endure it so that He will be glorified. Then she opened her Arabic Bible to Exodus 1, verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. We may be headed toward a time in America where it costs more than it does now to follow Jesus, and that is not a bad thing. 2 Timothy 3.12 reads, everyone, everyone, everyone 
who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So let me ask you, what is your persecution? In what ways have you suffered and are you suffering for following Jesus? Who has insulted you lately? Who has marginalized you lately? Who has mocked you lately? Who has thought less of you lately? Is it possible that we're not suffering for following Jesus because we're not following Him closely enough? Are we intimidated? Are we too timid? Are we afraid? Are we ashamed? Everyone, everyone God inspired Timothy to write, who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if you are, if you are suffering for your faith, if you are being insulted and mocked and marginalized, if you are being misrepresented, then be strong. Whatever your level of persecution, you are part of a rich heritage. When you are insulted or, or left out, you take your place in a long line, a line of Christians that is 20 centuries long. Courageous Christians who've decided that following Jesus openly, that following Him faithfully was worth whatever cost. So when you are persecuted, even slightly, you're part of a rich heritage. You take your place proudly, I hope, in that long line of Christ followers that goes back all the way to the days of Stephen and John the Baptist. And so when they say that your attitudes are antiquated and that your opinions are obsolete, be courageous. When they say your intellect is inferior and your morals are mindless, be courageous. When they say your styles are not stylish and your habits are not hip, be courageous. When you are blessed out and cursed out and singled out and left out, be courageous. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, the hymn says. The strife will not be long. And Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, because great is your reward in heaven. The book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, was not written primarily for 21st century Christians to predict the end of time and then sell books based on our predictions. The last book of the Bible, book of the book of Revelation, was written to persecuted Christians. It was the book of Revelation is God's manual of motivation. It, it's God's handbook of hope for people who, when they gathered publicly, knew they could be arrested, imprisoned, or worse. The book of Revelation was, was God's manual of motivation, His handbook of hope for families whose daddies and husbands were in prison. The book of Revelation was written as God's manual of motivation, as His handbook of hope for, for people who were tied to a stake, doused in tar, and about to, to be lit on fire. 
They would die a painful death, but they would die with dignity and they would die with hope because they knew they were on the winning side. They would know, because they had heard in their house churches the words of Revelation, they would know that there's coming a day when Jesus would return and make things right. They knew there's coming a day when God will, will set things straight. They knew that God will vanquish evil. They knew that their story was not the end of the story. And so they would die with dignity and hope they knew the strife would not be long. They, they knew those words of revelation that said, there's coming a day when, when he will wipe every tear from your eye. There's coming a day there'll be no more mourning or pain. For all those things would have passed away. The book of Revelation was written to people in the first century, maybe to people in the following century, even here, about the cost of following Jesus. And so Jesus, with all the tenderness of one who would lay down his life for you and did, whispers still, take up your cross and follow me. When our kids are baptized, we give them t-shirts that read, I have decided to follow Jesus. There's a stanza in that little song that says, my cross I'll carry till I see Jesus, no turning back. And Jesus, with all the tenderness of one who would lay down his life for you and did, whispers still, take up your cross and follow me. For 20 centuries, courageous Christians have counted the cost and said it's worth it. It's worth it to be imprisoned. It's worth it to die. It's worth it to suffer vocationally. It's worth it to suffer socially. And with all the tenderness of one who would lay down his life for you and did, Jesus whispers still, take up your cross and follow me. I would suggest that until we're ready to die for our faith, we've never understood, experienced the life in its abundance. A faith worth dying for is a faith worth living for. And I, in, I invite you to that kind of commitment. We're going to sing hymn number 629. We're going to invite you to a decision to follow Jesus. We're going to wait for you down here. We're going to invite you to join our church this morning at, at 8, 8.05 in our first service. A young lady stayed to become a member of our church. We invite you to do that. We're singing not just to wrap things up, but so that you will come. Let's stand, please.